Let's open our Bibles. Everybody say word. We are in Acts chapter 19. We are continuing our journey through the book of Acts, and we are picking up where we left off last week, and there is a, a concept that I want to introduce you to before we actually get into the text, and it's this reality that the Christian community, oh, I'd rather say culture, culture is always going to clash with the Christian community and specifically Jesus. And that's, it's not because we're out militantly preaching against culture, but it's because we live under a totally different ethic and a totally different paradigm and worldview. And it does clash with the cultural worldview. I don't know if you've ever felt the tension internally. Uh, I feel this often where I look at the scriptures and I'm like, okay, so this is what it like, looks like to be in, under the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like to operate in and through the Holy Spirit. But this is how the culture is telling me to operate. And there's this conflict. Do you ever feel that internal conflict between like what you know we're supposed to be about and then what culture tells us to be about? And I feel this incredible pressure I don't know if this is a reality, but I feel like there's a lot of pressure for us to make Christianity compatible with culture. Do you all sense that at all? Uh, and to make it complementary. And here's the reality. It's not. Uh, our faith system, Jesus, is not compatible or uh, complementary to the culture. That does not mean we're out there speaking negatively about the culture, but it's just a totally different ethic. And at times it brings, brings a, a type of uh, antagonism or even persecution. It begins to boil over, and we're going to see that. We've seen that continually through the book of Acts, and we will see that again this morning, uh, and specifically the city of Ephesus. I want you to look in your Bibles, chapter 19, starting at the end of verse 17. It says in the text that the name of the Lord was, what is that word? extolled. I use that often. Well, I was extolled the other day. I, we don't use that word, but what that word basically means is to be lifted up. The name of Jesus, the name of the Lord Jesus, not just his name Jesus, but him being the Lord of heaven and earth. His name was being lifted up. His name was being esteemed and also praised enthusiastically. We look at that and we're like, oh, what a blessing. The, the community of believers is growing in the city of Ephesus. And, and Paul, as you saw, or as remember last week, he had uh, unbelievable power working in and through him. God was miraculously healing people. And the message was spreading, and we think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. In fact, it says in verse 18 that also many of those who were now believers. What were, be, what were they before they were believers? Okay, pagans or Non-believers, right? <laughs> so here, profound stuff, right, coming out of the pulpit here at Firewall. Uh, many of those who were now believers, well, they were previously unbelievers. Okay, and what happens is there's this distinct change, and I remember the moment, distinctly remember the moment where my whole worldview shifted that I went from being a non-believer to being a believer, and it says in the text that their belief also came with works, that they came confessing and divulging their practices. So they took what was hidden in the darkness and they brought it to the light. In fact, it was a very costly uh, sacrifice or bonfire they offer. It says the number of those who practice magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. No, that is not the support of book burnings. But they brought their magical books, their incantations, their spells and they burned them, and it says they counted the value of them and found it came to about 50,000 pieces of silver. In today's economy, this is a multi-million dollar bonfire. Okay, so they're throwing down these books that they realize are really demonic, and they're burning them, and they're coming to Christ by the masses. 
and says in verse 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That is, as those came to Christ, they were discipled in Christ, and they continued to preach the message of Jesus, and it began to impact the overall culture. And I'll tell you right now, the culture took notice. They saw the radical movement that was being birthed in their presence, and they, they weren't pleased with it. In fact, their prophet was being threatened. They were threatened by the church, and there's going to be a great clash, as we will see in just a moment. But Paul, I believe at this point, was ready to turn his attention elsewhere. The city of Ephesus had been reached. The church had been planted. People are being discipled. He's ready to head back to Macedonia. In fact, in verse 21 of the text, it says, Now after these events, that is, as discipleship and as the masses were coming and as there was this big giant bonfire of freedom, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia. And Macedonia is contemporary Greece. And after Achaia, he was going to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I also must see what? What we may not realize is that Paul's driving passion through his three missionary journeys was always Rome. And we're actually turning to the kind of the home stretch of Paul's ministry. And so let me, let me do this. Guess what I'm about to show you? A map. Love my maps. Okay, so Paul is in the city of Ephesus. And at this point, uh, this is present-day Turkey. And so at this point, his heart is to start traveling north. He's going to go up to Troas, and he's going to head over to Macedonia. This is present-day Greece. And he wants to make a circuit of the churches that have already been planted. But ultimately, his goal is to get down to Jerusalem and really Rome. You can't see it. It's up here on the boot. But his heart's passion is driving him towards Rome. And what we may not realize as we read the book of Acts, because it's such a condensed, like, Cliff Notes version, we have literally covered decades of Paul's life through the study of Acts. He's traveled thousands of miles. Uh, in fact, he's written many books along the way. Uh, and he's faced all kinds of trials and hardships and church planting. And, and in fact, he tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians of some of the trials that he faced for preaching the gospel. And we've seen some of this in our study of the book of Acts. Paul multiple times declares that he served God with his whole heart. And I'm going to tell you right now, when you serve God with your whole heart, it's going to cost you. And you may be sitting here right now going, well, it's a cost I'm not really willing to pay right now. But I'll tell you, when God so moves on your heart that you're willing to serve him wholly with your whole life, it's going to cost you. It costs Paul. Paul tells the story of some of the things that we've seen in the book of Acts. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, uh, less one. It was the same lashing, same punishment that we see of Christ. Uh, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Some of you were like thinking, not that kind of stoned. Uh, he was stoned at the city of Lystra. You all remember that? When Paul was dragged outside of the city and literally stoned, they thought he was dead. And he crawled back into the city, kept preaching. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger. What word is repeating? Dangerous. Now, here's the thought. Some of us are like, following God's the safest place to be. Uh, no, it's not. It's not the safest place to be. It's dangerous. It takes courage. Okay, it was a dangerous pursuit, dangerous undertaking, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. Why would Paul go through all this? I'm, that's a question. I'm just curious. Why would Paul go through all this? Because what? 
Okay, he loved Jesus most. And in his estimation, every sacrifice was worth it. And it was all for the sake of the church, right? So he, he says, and, and apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. That's why Paul was constantly traveling. He was constantly visiting the churches. That's why we have the epistles, because he was writing to the churches, and he was like, hey, city of Corinth, hey, city of Thessalonica, hey, city of Ephesus, I'm, I'm writing to you. My heart is for you. Grace and peace to you. I wish I could be with you. His heart and concern was for his churches. And I think at this point, or for Christ church, and at this point he was ready to head back to Greece, as the text tells us. But before he heads for Macedonia, there is going to be a great disturbance in the city of Ephesus. The culture and the church are going to clash. Verse 23. It says in the text that about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's kind of an awkward way of saying it. It translates an old Greek idiom. What it's saying is there was a great disturbance. In fact, there was a conflict about to boil over in the city, and it was related to how the church was impacting the culture. Because as people were coming out of the culture, they were still in the culture, but they were no longer operating under the cultural ethic. They stopped worshiping at the temple of Artemis. They stopped buying idols. They stopped buying the magic books. They began serving one another. There was this Christian community that began to be evidenced in the, in the movement of the Holy Spirit, and, and the culture started looking in and going, this is a real threat. In fact, one of the greatest threats uh, that, was, that was being experienced was the last, la loss of revenue for the idol makers. In fact, we meet in verse 24, a guy by the name of Demetrius. And the text says, for a man named Demetrius, what was he by trade? A silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis who brought no little business to the craftsman. That means, again, it's an old idiom. He brought a lot of business. And so in the city of Ephesus, what we may not be aware of was the greatest temple in the ancient world to the goddess Artemis. In fact, here's a picture, an artist's rendition of that temple. Uh, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. If you all remember back when we were in Athens and we saw the Parthenon and we thought, wow, that was massive uh, to, the, to the Greek gods. Well, that, this dwarfed the Parthenon. I mean, just the scale of it was massive. It took over a century to construct. It was beautiful. In fact, some of these columns are still uh, in use today uh, in Turkey. This temple has actually been raised to the ground almost completely, but at the time... People would travel from all over the world to visit Ephesus. It was an esteemed city in the Roman Empire because of this particular temple. And so Demetrius is like, look, we make a lot of money when people travel from all over the known world to visit the temple. And if they're being reached with the gospel, they're not going to buy idols anymore. In fact, he goes on to say uh, to his fellow idol makers, says verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, he says, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. So what is his biggest concern at this moment? His pocketbook. He's like, hey, this is how we make a living. And if people start turning to Jesus and they turn away from these idols, and they turn away from the temple, they're no longer going to buy idols. They don't buy idols, we don't get money. And he says, you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded, that is an important word, has persuaded, oh wait, oh here we go, now my clicker won't work, okay, has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Paul didn't hide this. His intention was to persuade every single man, woman, and child he spoke to 
or had the opportunity to reach, he was trying to persuade them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of their soul. That was his driving passion of life. That's why he was willing to face beatings and shipwrecks and hunger and danger. It's because he wanted to persuade the world to turn away from false gods to the living God. And then Demetrius says, he's telling people that the gods made with hands are, are not gods. Guess what, family? Gods made with hands are not gods. In fact, if you can bring up, Treva, the picture of the temple, he would literally be able to point to the temple and go, there's no one who lives there. There's no God there. And so Demetrius, is he's not only worried that he, they're going to lose money, he's also concerned that the the reputation of this great goddess is going to be diminished. There was no God that lived in the temple. Paul never hid that. He, he was very clear. In fact, I'll tell you right now, family, you need, to, you need to know something about me. It is my absolute intention to use every tool possible, every means possible to persuade every single person I meet to turn away from false gods, to believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their soul. That's my driving passion. I am trying to persuade you. I hope that's clear. Some are like, well, you're going to proselytize. Absolutely. Because I believe that there is salvation in no other name. So we take this gospel out, and so Demetrius is like, well, this guy's driven about preaching Jesus. People are believing Jesus, and they're turning away. They, their eyes are being opened. They don't need the counterfeit anymore. When you have the living God, you don't need to embrace counterfeits. And these guys are now being seen as vendors of false gods. Verse 27, he says, and not only danger in that, not only is this trade of ours coming into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. They're worried about her reputation and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And so they're wanting to defend the honor of their goddess and it's interesting because as i look at that they're esteeming this goddess and i'm like it's not really much different than our own culture what are some of the gods and goddesses that we esteem in our culture money what else what'd you say oh <laughs> i thought something else i was like oh that's an interesting way of putting that yes Football, baseball, basketball, the balls, right. Mm -hmm. um, celebrities. I was like, David, that's a weird thing to yell out in church. Um, consumerism. Uh, how about sex? Uh, lust, uh, being prettier, sexier. It's interesting. Okay. Um, I, I think about this. The show is actually called American Idol. Like, there's nothing hiding it. Anyway, I sometimes we'll sit down with the boys and we'll watch TV together, and I want to teach them how to filter, okay? Like filter media, because we're just being bombarded with messages every single day. And so one day we were sitting down on the couch and we were watching, and I was we were watching the commercials, and the first commercial came on. Do you want to be skinnier? I was like, well, yeah. I, I could. I wouldn't be bad. Madeline's like, you could be. No, she didn't. <laughs> And they were laying out this 16-week plan, and you could be skinnier and better and sexier, and they're showing people frolicking on the beach, and I'm like, I jiggle too much to frolic like that. Anyway, and I was like, yeah, you know what? I should be skinnier. 
And then the next commercial, are you hungry? I could eat. And it was a deep dish pizza. I was like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll worry about thinner later. Let me give me a thick crust. And then the next commercial was like, do you want to drive a new car? Uh, yeah, my car is kind of old and wouldn't mind. But what's happening is we're constantly being bombarded with these messages. You're not going to be satisfied until you're this. You're not going to be satisfied until you have that. And you know what? Everything we grab a hold on, it doesn't satisfy. And we esteem ourselves as like better than these ancient cultures. We're like, we're not idolaters. But then we're like, I could be skinnier. Or I could eat a deep dish. And you know what I did this week? I told Barbara I went and got a deep dish pizza. I totally did. I got programmed. And so what happens is, is we come to Christ and we realize that these messages aren't true. That they won't satisfy. Like when somebody comes up to me and they go, well, you need a really good education. Why? Well, so you can get a really good paying job. Why? So you can have more money and buy more stuff. Okay, but why? Well, so you'll be happier. And then you talk to people who've got all that stuff and you're like, are you happier? They're like, well, not really. And then you're like, oh, no. It, it troubles me that Anthony Bourdain killed himself. That, that bothers me. Because it runs contrary to everything I'm being told. He had everything. He had fame and wealth and really good food. And he was funny. I loved his show. But he was a tortured soul. It tells me that you can literally have all that this world has to offer and still be miserable. And so the people of Ephesus, they were like fleeing this stuff. They were like, look, we've already worshipped the counterfeit. It didn't satisfy. And now we have come to Christ. You're being liberated from bondage and Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen couldn't stand for it any longer. It's like, no, we got to get these people enslaved again. Verse 28, when they heard this, when they heard the speech of Demetrius, it says that they were enraged. And so this is like the Chamber of Commerce of Ephesus. It says they began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And, and they began to march down the road. It'd be like a great group of people going, Great is capitalism! Or great is Wall Street! Or great is the freedom of choice! Or great... Be careful, Chris. We have our own chance, don't we? They march down Harbor Street. Here's, a, here's an image of what it looks like the theater today. You can still visit this massive theater. Some estimate that there are anywhere from 25 to 50,000 people could sit in this theater and hear crystal clear whatever was being spoken here on the stage. And so they march down Harbor Street. You can actually walk this street. And they're crying out, Great is, great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the crowd swells. And then all of a sudden, the theater is full. And a couple of believers are grabbed off the street and are dragged into the theater. In fact, the text tells us in verse 29 that the city was filled with what? Confusion! They didn't know what was going on. They rushed together into the theater. That's what people do when they hear something crazy. What's going on? It's like the looky-loos on the highway, and we're always like, I can't believe people look at the accident on the other side, and then we drive by, and we're like, whoa. Anyway, so they're wanting to see what's happening. It says they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. And these two guys are probably fellow missionaries, and all of a sudden they're being dragged by a mob who wants mob justice, they want blood, and they're dragging him into the temple to stand this mob trial. 
And Paul hears of this, and he immediately wants to rush into the temple, I think in his, or into the uh, theater. I think in his mind, he's like, well, this is a great platform. And then some of his friends are like, whoa, whoa, Paul, hold up. And it, it reminds me that sometimes we need to take the advice of our friends who, like, actually love us and care about us, and, like, are, they're like, you're going to make a big mistake here. Paul wished to go in among the crowd. He heard of his companions being taken. The disciples wouldn't let him, and even some of the Asiarchs. And since we don't know what that word Asiarchs is, it's basically the high-ranking officials of Ephesus. And it tells me that the gospel found its home in every stratum of society, whether it was a high-ranking official or it was a street vendor. The gospel was breaking into people's lives, and they sent to him and urging him, don't venture into the theater. What do you think would have happened to Paul if he went to the theater that day? It probably would have torn him to pieces. So he, he heeds the advice of his friends, and then this, this wonderful verse, this tells me everything I need to know about protests and mob mentality. In verse 32, it said, Some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they'd come together. They're just like, Aah! It's like when you watch a protest, and then the, the uh, uh, what is it, the person interviewing, they got the camera, the news broadcaster, or the reporter, puts a mic in front of a, a, a person's face and goes, why are you here? And you yell out something nonsensical. Pizza Hut! La, 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 la. And the reporter's like, what, I think what they actually meant by that is that they're deeply concerned about this particular issue. No, most mobs, they have no idea. It's just chaos, and people love being a part of chaos. And so at some point, they put, the, put this spokesperson in front, this guy Alexander, I love it. His only mention in the text, his 15 seconds of fame in the scriptures is that everybody ignored him for two hours. Verse 33, <laughs> this is awesome. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. He was wanting to defend. He's going to say, look, there's a difference between our Jewish faith and this people called the way, but it says in the text for about two hours, they just cried out with one voice, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest, and they just kept chanting it and chanting it and chanting it. And you know what? Here's the reality no matter how passionately they chanted it, no matter how hoarse they got declaring the greatness of their God, it didn't make it true. There was nothing great about Artemis. In fact, we come to discover they're worshiping a rock. Well, cooler heads prevail. And I love when cooler heads prevail. I love when there's somebody who's just like, hey, let's just think about this a little bit more realistically. The town clerk, who is also the mayor, steps up, and it says... The greatness, uh, well, let's look at verse 35. He first argues with the crowd. He says, look, guys, the greatness of Artemis is firmly established. The town clerk had quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Eph Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis, <laughs> listen to this, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So at one point in history, a meteor landed near Ephesus, and they immediately went, it's a gift from Zeus. And so they picked up this rock, and they carried it, and they built a temple around it, and they worshipped a rock. A rock. And I'm like, how could a group of people be so silly as to worship a rock? And then I'm like, well, we kind of worship rock stars, don't we? It's kind of a funny play on words. We worship funny things. He says, look, their greatness can't be questioned. Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet. Don't do anything rash. And it shows me, just as Romans declares, 
when people turn away from the creator, and here's the reality. There is no doubt that there is a creator. In fact, all of creation declares the glory of God. We know that there's a creator. In fact, we have built within us this reality that there's some level of a law and order and structure and that at some point in time, there will be a judgment of humanity. We have that built into our DNA that God will bring justice to the earth. And even though we know there's a creator, and even though his law is like inherently built in us, and even though we know he will judge the world, we still turn away from the creator to worship the what? The creation, or the rock, or the plant, or the car, or the gold. I mean, we just turn away from the creator to worship the created. And so the second argument that this town clerk brings is, is something that I think is good for us to hear that Gaius and Aristarchus had done nothing wrong. They were innocent of any crime. And this speaks to me as believers, how we are to interact in culture. We're to be in the culture, not of the culture, but we're not also to attack the culture. Look at this. For you've brought these men here. They're not sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. And those two words, sacrilegious and blasphemers, it's thrown around, but sacrilegious means to rob temples. They weren't walking in the temple of Artemis, and they weren't blaspheming her. In fact, they were proclaiming the gospel. Please listen to this, because I think we've lost our way. Somewhere along the way, the church and individual Christians have forgotten that we're called to be conduits of God's love to the world, not his wrath or his justice or his judgment. These men had a good testimony in the community. I mean, what could they say? They're so loving. I can't believe how sacrificial these guys are. They're such servants. I mean, when you think about it, it's kind of silly. They were sharing the gospel, loving the Lord, and so the town clerk's like, look, they've done nothing wrong. He argues, third, that if there was a legal issue, take it to the courts. There was no legal issue, so they didn't take it to the courts. And then fourth, the mob was at risk of being charged with rioting. And you know what happened? The crowd disbanded. Sometimes we get this idea that we got to fight, but sometimes cooler heads prevail, the crowds diminish, and then all of a sudden, Gaius and Aristarchus were like, that was a crazy day. And they made their way home. And by the time we turn to chapter 20, verse 1, Paul is now ready to leave and continue his journey. In fact, verse 1, it says, after the uproar ceased. Paul sent for the disciples. He encouraged them. He admonished them. He said farewell, and he departed for Macedonia. And this serves as a really good pause in our study of the book of Acts uh, because uh, I'm about to say farewell to you, not forever, but for the summer. Um, we have an opportunity. The board of elders have, have seen after, this is my ninth year of preaching here at Firewheel, um, and it's been a wonderful time, and I love it, but they, they think it's a good time for me to take a break. In fact, uh, through the summer, through July and August, and so we're going to have uh, Eddie, Pastor Eddie and Tyler preach through July. They're going to preach through the book of Ephesians, which is fitting because we are in the city of Ephesus. And then my good friend Taryn Dames uh, from North Dallas Bible, uh, Community Bible Fellowship, I got, his, I got it wrong. Tell Darren I'm sorry. Um, he's going to come in and bring a couple of messages that I guarantee you are going to challenge you. Uh, but I want to encourage you uh, that during the summer to stay connected, stay in the word, uh, because family, this is our life. Okay, we don't take breaks from being Christians. We don't take a break from being 
Christ followers, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 a year. Amen? Well, let's talk about a few applications for us uh, before we head out these doors. And something we need to be aware of, there is always going to be a clash between Jesus and culture, regardless of the culture. And what I mean by that, it's not how most people take it. I'm not encouraging us to stand on street corners and militantly yell out, you wicked sinners, you're going to hell. That's, that's not how the church is supposed to interact with culture. I don't know when the church found herself to be the judge, jury, and executioner of culture. It's not our job. But when we start to behave and we start to live under the ethic of the kingdom of God, I guarantee the culture will take notice. Because in and through the Holy Spirit, things like this, we're called not to be selfish, but selfless. We are called not to be greedy, but generous. Not carnally competitive or combative, but compassionate and gracious. Instead of lashing out and protecting ourselves, we are to love others. Instead of being served, we're to serve. Instead of walking around in a spirit of the flesh, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a massive paradigm shift. Two weeks ago, I was in Bullhead City. I told you all about this last week. And uh, it's, if you don't remember, it's right between nowhere and what are you doing here, Arizona? But right in the middle. Um, And there were a couple of people who were living in my dad's house. And they didn't want to leave. And in my flesh, I was like, oh, I get them out. No problem. Then I went to uh, Bullhead Calvary Chapel. And I was hearing a message preached by Pastor Chuck there. And he was talking about how Mary took a very expensive bottle of ointment and anointed Jesus' feet before he was taken to the cross. And the message was about serving and serving people who aren't lovely. Like Mary served the Lord, but we are to serve others. And I left that message and I was like, but I don't want to serve them, Lord. I don't want to love. It changed my whole perspective. And I started operating under the kingdom of God principle as opposed to the kingdom of this world. And I was able to love those who are hard to love. That's what I mean. And when you operate that way, there's times where people are just not going to like you because of the Jesus in you. I'm going to tell you right now, you do not have to hide your love affair with Jesus from the world. I love him too. We get to tell people about that. We get to tell people about Jesus. It's a privilege. In fact, we're told to tell others. And when you live like Jesus lived, you're going to be the light of the world. But guess what light does? Where does it shine? In the darkness. And those in the dark don't necessarily like the light. And sometimes we'll get offended. We're like, I can't believe it. They're hating me for serving them. And it's like, well, yeah, because you're, you're being Jesus to them. But I want to encourage you that no matter what uh, clashes against you or how people push back, love Jesus most. Love Jesus most. Say it with me. Love Jesus most. Okay, secondly, idolatry is ancient, but it is not dead. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, you know, we look back on these ancient cultures and we think, I wouldn't worship a rock, and I already used the joke, haha, but we worship rock stars. We worship money and the things that money can buy. That's why we bow down to the altar of Visa and MasterCard. We may not think we bow down to them, but guess what? Every single month we're doing what? We're paying them, baby, and we're paying them back with interest. 
See, our idols always demand more than we can give. Uh, we worship beauty in relationships and fame and going viral. We have our idols, and I'm going to tell you right now, only Jesus will satisfy. In my own life, over the past 17 years of being a believer, I've come to discover as being, being an adult is a steady stream of discouragement. Do you all agree with that? It's a steady stream, man. <laughs> Conflict, toil, thorns, all that. The only source of continual joy and satisfaction that has been in my life and my family's life has been Jesus. And worship and prayer and his scriptures, the church, has been a steady stream of, of, of satisfaction and, and joy. Not that we're always joyous, but man, I'll tell you, it is the only satisfying thing that I've ever discovered in this life. I find it interesting what they were yelling out. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Here is that wonderful artist rendition again. And isn't it amazing? Look at that. It's beautiful. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Great as Artemis of the... Here's a picture of this great temple today. It's just dust. Yet here we are today, praising the name Jesus, lifting high his name, throwing down our books of magic and incantations and throwing down our idols and grabbing a, pole, a hold of Christ who truly satisfies and then finally, I just want to encourage you, stay the course through the summer. I know the temptation is, oh, Pastor Chris is away, so we will too. Um, don't take the summer off from church. I, I encourage you, if we're not here, we're, we're at church on Sunday no matter where we're at. Gathering with, with believers and singing and worshiping. I want to encourage you to, to stay plugged in through the summer. Get involved. And do not forget, you are loved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. I am going to miss, oh, so much will I miss, this wonderful body of believers, your church. And I pray you protect her. You shepherd her, Lord Jesus. You are the true shepherd. And I pray that you would speak powerfully through Pastor Eddie and Tyler and through Taryn. And uh, that there would be a, a great rest in rejuvenation for our families. We get away. We spend time together. I, I think of so many times where I've, I've spent long hours focused on the ministry and, and uh, the consequence has been at home. And so I pray for that time away. Um, if you're here today and you do not have Jesus as your Savior, I, I want you to please just listen. I, I understand that you may think that there's no way that this Jesus thing is real, but I, I want you to hear this. Jesus really did die for your sins. And he was buried, and the Bible says he has risen from the grave, and he is alive right now. And the Bible declares that all who believe in him, all who trust in him will be saved. If you feel like God is calling you to trust in Christ, in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried. I believe you've risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is your heart's prayer, you've just passed from death to life. You are spiritually alive in Christ. June 24th, 2018 is your spiritual birthday. Happy birthday. Welcome to the family. And so, Lord, I pray abundant blessings on Firewall Bible Fellowship while we're away. Great encouragement. You continue to lead your church. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together and stretch.
It is the seventh inning stretch. Now let's all join together in a rousing singing of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Till we meet again, August 19th. <laughs> I'm going to miss you guys terribly. But do not forget, family. You are loved. Now go tell the world, go proclaim to the world, go declare that they are too. Have a great week.